We have so many people who thought they knew how we began. During a world war, you do the things, grim things, nobody wants running shoots. You know, the group was broken up for national service and you all came back at different times, you went to different times. If you wanted to be a fighter pilot, you know, you could go and do that. So it, it was tempting to be a fighter pilot. You know, oh, yeah. That's a, cool, that's a cool business card right there, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> fighter yeah. pilot. The world changed and the north of England, the, the industrial revolution, it all changed. What we did when we went to college, though, we made a lot of contacts. And that was so useful. You know, they thought we were mad. They thought we were crazy. You're setting, you're setting up business. You, you're doing it. So they were just so willing to help. I guess you were lucky in a way that your brother had a very different skill set to you, right? And a different focus. Absolutely. And uh, we were lucky. So you and your brother set up Mercury Sports Footwear. After 18 months, you realise you can't trademark the name. So you come up with a new name, Reebok you can trademark which by the way is a big lesson for people today that isn't focused on enough a lot of people come up with a name around the kitchen table launch it only to realize they can't get the trademark on it and i would go in there and say look i've got my reebok shoes and this says yeah they're very nice shoes but um who's reebok we're selling more than nike and adidas we, i don't, we don't think people realize that i don't think people that's that's unbelievable with five million pairs every month. So what happened? So you, so you, you, you quit? Did you literally? You say, I, I, I'm, I'm. Did you hand the reins over to someone else? What was the actual kind of action you took? As as you grow, so people take places. People come in and do different jobs. For me, I decided it was time to get away from just being an ambassador. You know, when we were small, we used to get legal letters for different this, different that. Even even Adidas uh, sent us a letter four years into business. Welcome, Joe, to the podcast. It's great to have you here. I wonder if we could kick off the podcast by you kindly telling the audience a little bit about you as if you need an introduction as the founder of Reebok. Tell me, Joe, what's your story? What's my story? Well, thank you, Simon. Thank you for asking. Um, my story stands a long way, 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 way back. The Foster family. You know, that, that is the story, really. The, the reason that I wrote this down is because we have so many people who thought they knew how Reebok began. But Reebok began with my, you could say, with my grandfather, 1895. And his grandfather, which, oddly enough, he used to visit to learn his trade, cobbling. He was a cobbler. But he repaired cricket boots as well. And cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. And my grandfather obviously asked him, why have they got spikes in the bottom, Granddad? And Granddad obviously replied, to give the cricketers grip when they're bowling in the field, gives them grip. Well, my grandfather was part of the Lothar Athletics Club, Bolton Primrose Harriers. And he was an average runner, just about midfield on most of the events. But he thought, well, if I could put spikes in the bottom of a pair of shoes, maybe I would be a bit faster and I wouldn't slip. Because in those days, if they were not on grass, they were on cinder tracks. So he did this. In 1895, age 15, he made himself a pair of running shoes with spikes in the bottom and did the unlikely thing of coming second in his next race, which was uh, a bit of consternation for the other, uh, other athletes who were not used to seeing him up there. That was the beginning of his business. And his business really in the year 1900. He had a business just being a cobbler and also making running shoes. And it's amazing. We do have photographs somewhere of the front of his uh, his his place on Dean Road in Bolton. And it's just 
the whole front of the building is covered with advertising. Advertising is cobbling business and advertising is, uh, is athletic shoe business. That's quite incredible. But by 1904, he had three world records from a guy named Alf Schrubb, which made you sort of understand the fact that he, he, knew, how to, he knew how to promote his product. And so he needed people like Alf Schrubb. And during that first decade, yes, he, he not only had three world records, he also had gold medals from Olympians. But of course, the second decade of uh, the 20th century, we have World War I. Really, no place for an athletic shoe business. So he was repairing uh, army boots. And we do have the story, which is told to me by my father. By that time, father was working in the business. But they were in the backyard of the, of the workshop, scrubbing mud off the boots that were coming back from Flanders uh, to be repaired. And really, whilst it was mud, there was so much blood in there that it was turning red. So oh. rather gruesome. But, you know, it's, 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 it's a fascinating bit of history, though. I mean, I, I kind of. I think the, the different elements of, of winning a war sometimes are very top line, like decisions politicians made. And it's not talked about enough. The entrepreneurs that did things like you just described to make sure that the army boots were operational for the people that needed them. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? It is in a way, you know, and it's one of those things. You know, one of the side stories to the, uh, to the whole sort of adventure, what, you know, what was the shoemaker's business like? Well, during a world war, you do the things, grim things. Nobody wants running shoes. So they were, they were repairing uh, army boots. And of course, it took until the 1920s. By that time, people had got back. People were starting running again, doing athletics. And in those days, it was track and field mainly, or some cross country, that sort of thing. And, uh, but we, uh, we have from Grandfather's Day, a, a replica of his uh, a letterhead that they produced. And, and it, on this letterhead, apart from the fact that we have 96 football teams, rugby teams, and it's difficult to find one. I know only Tottenham Hotspur are actually not listed on it. Apart from that, Man City, Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Everton, you name it, all these teams, 90-odd teams, um, Rangers, Celtic. He was supplying them, you know, and I sometimes wonder even today, what happened to that business that he had? But he was supplying them, apart from... On, on this letter, I had also that he supplied the, all the athletes at the Antwerp Olympic Games in 1920, <clears throat> which is quite an event. The 20s, that was his Belle Epoque era. Uh, and through the 20s, uh, in I think it was 1924, uh, Eric Little and uh, Harold Abrams, they won gold medals. And in 1928, Lord Burley won a gold medal. And those three are, uh, are in Chariots of Fire. Uh, that's they're, they're the people that actually wore Joe Foster's shoes, my grandfather's shoes, to win their gold medals, and then later uh, they, they were the people that uh, that were part of the important part of the uh, chariots of fire. Amazing. Sorry, no, it's I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. I was, I was just saying it's, a, it's amazing to understand the history, and I think also for a lot of my listeners, they might be surprised that Reebok is a British brand. I think a lot of people do think it's an American brand or they do think it's a German brand, right? I think it's the history you're describing here of, of, of the original 
origins of, I guess, your family's business. I, I think for a lot of people, be uh, it's, it's fascinating. So I didn't want to interrupt you, but it just, I was just saying, wow, really. Well, that was it, because grandfather, his business was J.W. Foster and Sons. And by that time, of course, he had two sons, and that was my father and uncle. But my grandfather was to die in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935. So apart from not knowing him, I was actually born on his birthday. And, uh, and this is why, because grandma was, uh, she was quite a firebrand, and she insisted I brought my name with me. So he was Joseph William Foster, and this is why I am Joseph William Foster. Wow, that's also amazing. Did they, did, I kind of want to ask, was it a natural birth or did they say, right, you've got to, you've got to be born today. This would be really good. This would be good karma. You know, like, was it, was it a natural birth? As far as I know, uh, I was there at the time, but uh, not too conscious about what was going on. Oh, yeah, it wasn't I, your decision, you mean? <laughs> the only thing I do know that mother used to tell me time and time and time again, it actually snowed on my birthday, oh. the 18th of May, 1935. <laughs> Wow, May, nineteen. Yeah, in May, yes. It was snowing in May. People say global it warming. Snowing. It was. It was happening back then, wasn't it? I mean, May in England should not be snowing. No. So global global be. warming's been a problem for a while then. So uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. That's amazing. But um, but so 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 you're so you're um, you're born into this entrepreneurial family. Do you think being born into this entrepreneurial family led to what happened? Do you think if you'd been on, born into a family that wasn't entrepreneurial. I mean, of course, it's hard to predict. Do you, do you think that being around entrepreneurs made you an entrepreneur? Well, the odd thing is, um, and, and we, we can wonder about this, number one, in those days, we didn't know anything about the word entrepreneur. And that, that sees themselves as something that came into the vocabulary uh, later on. But uh, grandfather, certainly he was an entrepreneur. But he died and his sons took over. And, and his sons didn't really advance the company. They took over, but then again, they just didn't get on. There were six years between them, and father and uncle just did not get on together. My uncle, he actually did the hand-sewn shoes. These were the turn shoes, where the shoes were turned inside out, and they're hand-sewn together with the sort of the inner sole and outer sole. They turned back, and then the outer sole is put on with the spikes in. But, and that, that is machine-sewn, but really those are hand-sewn shoes. That's what, uh, that was... That was grandfather's shoe, and he knew that. Father, the one thing he did do was to recognize the fact that we needed something a little cheaper, that uh, it was very expensive hand-sewing shoes. So he did develop um, a machine-sewn similar shoe with spikes in the bottom. And so my father on that side of the business and my uncle, Bill, ran the other side of the business. And this in itself was a division. They, They had their own bookkeeping. They looked after, but they never spoke. In fact, it was my grandmother who really kept them together. Grandma sort of kept them working. And it was only when she died that then not only did they not speak to each other, they were more likely to have a fight, which was very odd for Jeff and myself. We didn't realize this. But before then, I joined a company um, when, when I was 17. We'd gone through World War II, mind you. I was born in 35. In four years, we had World War II. So all the lights were, you know, we're, we're in the blackout. It's so different. We had double summertime. So it was light till about 11 o'clock at night. Things were so different. And when I'm 10, this changes. They put the lights back on again. Wow, a different world. Mm. It's, it, well, in a different world. But, you know, but when you're, when you're a youngster, up to 10 years, you know, that's normal life. 
you, know, you, you know, no different. Everybody lives like this. This is what we do. Uh, yeah, we have world wars, and uh, of course we had radio. We had no television or anything like that, but we could listen to uh, the radio about the war. We could we could watch, in fact, uh, the sky light up in in Manchester when the bombing was on, because Bolton was just slightly elevated from uh, Manchester where we lived, and we could we could see this in the distance. So uh, we we're brought up in that sort of I don't know that lifestyle, and it, it changed when when we were ten. War is over. Fine. So for the next seven years with education, I, w I went to college and uh, I was educated in engineering you know, because north of England, engineering, the, uh, you know, this is where it all began, where all the, uh, the world changed and the north of England, the, the industrial revolution, it all changed. So I, I, could have, uh, I could have actually gone into engineering. There was a lot of engineering. I think, I think at the time there was uh, there was the Avalon propellers, which is now British Aerospace. Um, anybody who was in our engineering department, we, we all went for interviews. And yeah, so I, I could have done that. But uh, at seventeen, okay, let's have a, let's have a twelve months in in the business. So I went into the business when I was seventeen and learned a bit, not a lot, but I learned a bit. However, at eighteen, one year later. Myself and my brother, we both went off to do national service. Um, national service, two years. I was in the RAF on, on radar, and, and Jeff was, he, he went to Germany in the army. And he saw Adidas, he saw Puma, he saw what they were doing. And uh, okay, I spent two years in the RAF, 12 months of which I played badminton. I was fairly handy at playing badminton in those days, so. Uh, for, uh, and and they loved they loved sport in, in in the forces. So I was off playing badminton for twelve months of, of my two years. Anyway, we come back, we come back to Foster's, and okay, life changed. You know, we'd learned self uh, self sufficiency. We, we were looking after ourselves. We, we knew a bit different. Um, mother had not been doing the washing. She'd not been looking after us, making the meals. We. We call that independence. And when Jeff and I came back, we're looking at the company and we, we're seeing a company that's lost in the 1930s. It's still making the same shoes. They've not moved on. And father and uncle, they just did their own thing. And like I could say, apart from the occasional shouting at each other, they would, they would prefer to fight or not even speak. Do, do you it think, was a very important situation. Do you think that's why the business wasn't working? Was it the lack of communication through the founders or wasn't innovating correctly? Or what, 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 what do you think was the issue? Just wanting people to learn. A lot of people listening uh, to this podcast also have businesses that maybe aren't working. So is there any lessons you took from that? Well, I mean, the other thing is, you know, we, we can make a comparison with Nadi Dassler and uh, Rudy Dassler. Well, Rudy went off because they, they just feuded all the time. And so Rudy went off to set up his company, Puma. Maybe families, it's difficult to get on together. But, you know, I have reflected on this in later years. And uh, I sometimes think that they went through two world wars. Mm. And with this small interlude in the 20s, they had the two world wars to put up with. I just wonder by the time that those world wars ended and they were sort of in the, in the 50s, whether they'd lost the initiative, the feel, the ability to then pick up a business and, and make it grow. Mm. Did they go to Did they go to war? Did they actually 
go to the battlefield or were they, were they able to, to still work in the business? I mean, you mentioned they were cleaning, cleaning army boots. That sounds like a reason to, to stay, right? They had, they had a, what was their role in the war? Well, that's what happened in the war. They, they became reserve people who had who were working at a job that was essential, apparently. So, no, they were not called up to go to war. The business shut down at that point. Is that, I mean, I'm, 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 I love history, so I'm always interested, like, the process. Did the, the business actually shut down, or did the government pay them to make uh, fix these shoes? Oh, the government paid them. Yes, it was a, it was a business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, it was a bit of a sideline. I know my father went into making sandals. Mm. Uh, because you can't... You know, in, you couldn't get all the many materials, but sandals didn't require an awful lot of uh, leather. So, so they made, and that was quite a nice uh, income. And apart from that, of course, uh, during the war, we had coupons, mm. uh, clothing coupons, and that became uh, a business. A lot of people were occupied in that, but uh, you know, trading coupons, I think it was a black market, they used to call it, but... Uh, it was something that everybody was involved in, and I know very well that uh, that they were involved in it. And become, but everybody seemed to be. It's like, how do you make your money? How do you get this? You know, how did you get petrol? Well, you had to have coupons. Where do you get your coupons from? Yeah. And so it goes. On. So it was quite quite a, a business in in those days, and uh, and I think it, later, just after the war, I think the black market kept on for quite some while. I know we, we were often sort of going places, picking stuff up, <clears throat> and, until all this sort of drifted away and life got back down to normal. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so I just wonder if, uh, if my Uncle Bill and my father, they got themselves into something else. This is how you make a living. Right. It, it had taken away that sort of concentration on wearing athletics, you know, we're, we're running shoes. And as I say, I think by the time, uh, by the time things got down to normal, and he, it was probably too late for that, because <clears throat> I know that being being an entrepreneur, I, mean, I think today, you know, how long did we set up that company? How long did we do what we did? And you have to be young. Mm. Yeah. I think being an entrepreneur is a young man's job. You've got to be young. You've got to have that feeling that uh, we're undefeatable. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll have a go at this. We just come back from national service, and here we are, looking at the company that's failing, and we're trying our best to get uh, uncle and uh, father to come on, you know, we've got to move this company forward. Mm-hmm. We need to be, we need to have a plan. We need to have salesmen. Well, I mean, I offered uh, to my father, why, why don't I go on, on the road and start selling the shoes? Uh, I'm afraid it was, it received the sort of <laughs> mm-hmm. wording that you can't repeat. No, you don't do that. And also I would talk to father about, you know, we need to do things. And he would say, look, when, when your uncle Bill's gone and I'm gone, this company is yours. Mm. Um, you can do what you like with it. And I'm saying, yeah, Dad, fine. Number one, we don't want either Bill or you to go. That's not, that's not the plan. Uh, but this company will be gone before you are. And, and that, that is where it's like, we can't do that. So when we talk about entrepreneurs and what we did, we were more or less <clears throat> forced into it. You know, we either go down with the ship, which we were not willing to do, um, or, or we... We think about our own business. And I think we're fortunate that Jeff and I both had the same feelings and both willing to go. Although I must admit, I, I did get the blame. I think I did more of the talking when it came to what, what are we going to do? So I got the blame for really leading Jeff astray mm. and taking out <laughs> and setting up this business. 
Was um, it was there awkward Sunday lunches once you went on, went off and, and and set up the new company, or or was it just like healthy competition, or how how was it viewed within the family dynamics? Um, well, it was a bit of an explosion, really, at that point of time. And uh, <clears throat> whilst Jeff lived at home and managed to do that for quite some time, I had left. I've been married and got my own property and. And I think it took, a, it took a, a good 12 months, maybe even 18 months before, really, we started speaking again and father accepted the fact that uh, we'd done what we'd done and that was okay. Um, it, it really healed much more because 18 months after we had uh, left the company, we left the company in, in 1958, and 18 months after, my uncle died. So when he died, that side of the business ended. Um, and the reason it ended is that uh, you've probably heard of uh, Norman Walsh. Norman Walsh, he, he has a small business in Bolton, had a small business. He, unfortunately, Norman passed away quite some time ago, but the business continued. But, but he was doing the hand sewing in, in the, for, uh, for Uncle Bill. So when he left, the hand sewing went. Father saw that as sort of the end of the business because whilst he had some machine stores up and the good business, yeah, he didn't really have... I don't think he had the will then to keep it going. So he, he closed the business and set up a small sports shop. And, uh, and in fact, in a couple, well, it, took, it took a while, but we did actually buy the Jade Foster business. When I say we bought it, there wasn't really much money passed over because once my father had died, uh, my mother didn't want to continue the business as a sports shop. So she just said, come on, boys, you know, it's yours. Mm. That, that legacy is also interesting, isn't it? I feel like that 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 generation. I, I see. I spent quite a lot of time in China, and what I always saw, you know, because there's kind of new rich in China, new success stories. Whenever you talk to anybody really successful in China, there's always this kind of like my son or my daughter, if you're lucky, but mainly my son because of one child policy is going to take over my business. It's almost like there's no choice for that 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 child um and and so i feel like you were part of that era in england right there was there was definitely almost an expectation like you said your father would say when i'm gone this business is yours sort sort of like no choice almost well i I think a lot of business were inherited in those days yes and 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 i think we were part of that possibly we're getting towards the end of it i think the i think world war ii was the start of things changing but it took a while to change because I think we still had rationing and all sorts of things for two or three years after the war finished. So, you know, the, the effects of the war lingered for quite some time. It certainly was still there when we left, uh, left the business in, in 1958. I, I think at that time we probably still had rationing or it was wow, just really? finished. 1958. Wow. I just, for some reason I thought it was a few years afterwards. Oh, no, no, 90, it was 1945, 1948, that, that was over in 1948. So it was well over. But uh, I, think, I think we still felt, you know... The, the mindset's the, probably still there, right? You're never going to lose that, that caution and mindset around, I guess, the scarcity of things, right? Yeah. You know, we, we were still sort of looking at life and uh, uh, everything was old in the factory. In, in fact, when we, when we moved, we, we bought second-hand material, machinery, and we bought it for something like £25. Mm. which you know which was nothing but mm. we didn't have any money we, we were in this very old um brewery an old brewery and our machinery around the edge because the floor that we were using was just so unsafe so you know 
things haven't moved on that much. It's, well, you it's know, interesting. I think history, in a way, repeats itself, doesn't it? You're 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 talking there about like you know the way you put it is fascinating to me. It's like you buy you buy um, secondhand material, right? Twenty twenty five pounds. Actually, these days that's packaged up as recycling. <laughs> it, <laughs> nowadays, it's called recycling, right? It's it's though like, you know history starts repeating itself just under a different brand name, doesn't it? Well, well, in a way, yes, but uh, I mean, the machinery was good enough to make shoes, <clears throat> so for us that was fine. And uh, so, yes, we we left actually in uh, in 1958. Uh, we'd done we'd been to college, learning about learning about footwear, and uh, we you know what we did when we went to college though we made a lot of contacts, and that was so useful because you know in in the Jade and Foster business. You know, we knew what was going on on the floor there. We knew where to get those materials from. But we wanted to move forward. And we went to college in Rossendale, made a lot of acquaintances, people, people who were involved in footwear. So you know, if we wanted anything different, if we wanted using everything we wanted, we could just ask now a friend. And, and the teachers there were so brilliant. They, you know, they thought we were mad. They mm. thought we were crazy. You're setting, you're setting up a business. You, you're doing it. So <clears throat> they were just so willing to help. <clears throat> and uh, in fact, Jeff, we set up our business, and for 12 months, Jeff used to go one day a week to learn more about pattern cutting, last making, to, to learn the uh, techniques uh, of footwear. And I would look after, I would look after the rest because that was Jeff. Jeff's thing was the factory. He loved the factory, and I, and I think that we look at father and uncle; they just couldn't get on together. Mm. We got on great. We never had a row. We, we didn't even have any harsh words at all. Wow. Jeff was looking at a factory and he said, you look after everything else. So <clears throat> that's me. I'm I think, I think sales and everything. So much learnings there for my listeners. You know, like I think the partnerships that work best is when you do have a close relationship, but you have very separate job roles and you respect each other's ability to go and do those job roles. It's, uh, it's, I think that's key to a good co-founder relationship um, and, and a lot of people don't don't think about that. They think about just getting on with the person, and and they duplicate skills, for example. But you, I guess you were lucky in a way that your brother had a very different skill set to you, right, and a different focus. Absolutely, and uh, we were lucky. <clears throat> he was, and we were probably nearer than uncle and father. They they had six years apart. We had only two, mm. so the two years apart. He, he was older than me by two years. But we we just got on. We didn't uh, we didn't socialize together. Mm. We we'd separate social lives totally, um, but when it came to work, we worked together very well. He was two years older than you, but was still at home. You left, married, and had a house. It feels like, well, what, what, how come? Uh, how come? Yes, well, I suppose I met the girl I was going to marry. Yeah. <clears throat> let me let me record this back into the fact that you you know when we were younger, you're part of a social group. And we used to go to the local dances and whatever, and you meet people. So you got a nice big social group. But when you, when we all got to the age of eighteen to twenty-one, suddenly these guys are going. You know, somebody goes away, leaves the group, and this group is changing. And when you come back after two years, you come back and you think, "What's happened to the guys?" Well, the guys who've gone before you, they'd come back, and you know. This, this social group wasn't there anymore. So they seemed to pick up with one of the girls and they get married. And you know, that, that's what happened to me. You come back and where's the social group? Well, there's, you know, there's one or two girls here that still that are around. So you, you, know, you get friendly again. But the group was gone. So 
Now, the answer to that was, well, you just got married. Mm. It seemed to be the routine. that you know, The group was brought up for national service, and you all came back at different times. You went to different times, came back at different times. Mm. So at 21, I, I married at 21. And do you think national service, I mean, why, why did you both not go into the RAF? Was it, did you have a decision at that moment? Do you get a choice when you get into national service at that time? Um, you, you, could, uh, you could put down what choice you had, but uh, somebody else decided for you. It wasn't a question that you were just, you know, what, what you wanted to do, you would do. No. Um, and they put me in the RAF, they put Jeff in the army. Do you think, uh, that, do you think that shaped you as a, as a business person? Do you think being in the RAF... Gave you extra. I, I think that uh, I think national service. National. We were both. We were both in the scouts movement because during the war that was part of your social life. We were both in the scouts movement, and you know you go camping. And our our scout master was a pretty strict guy. He he taught us things. It wasn't just going there for a bit of a social evening and doing things. No, we really tiny we did adventures and we went camping you know we did all those things so we learned a lot to be self-sufficient then you go into the forces and that just does again the discipline yeah the discipline of the forces it was really good and because you need to know how to how to look after yourself as i said i'm, I'm my second 12 months my second year in, in the area i'm playing badminton I, I wasn't i wasn't on the camp that much um, it sounds a bit like the Forrest Gump playing table tennis kind of story, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it happened because when, when, just when I went, I went to this place called Bordsey, which was in our, which was the first rotor um, sort of unit that they built, which is underground. So we're living in Bordsey Manor, which is very nice, that nice area. But to go to go to the radar, we went to this rotor, and and it goes down underground and almost out under sea. So we're down and we, we had doors that closed on that just shut out. If you, I think we were bomb proof apart from if somebody put an atomic bomb on top of us, it might've destroyed things, but these doors were closed and they were gas proof, waterproof, everything. And we were down and you've probably seen these in old films where you had the plot and table, the wafts there with the, the sticks pushing around where these airplanes are going. And, the cabins, the uh, control cabins, were, were just elevated and around this table. So that was the radar operation. And this was absolutely new. When I first went, we went to a place, and it was called Trinity Heath, and it was on the ground in a wooden hut, freezing in the middle of winter, because we arrived at all of our great course on, watching these screens go round and just a little strobe coming up. And you were, ah, but it was six months later, this new facility had just opened. And we go down there, it's heated, it's beautiful, a, a very low light is on, a low orange glow all round. And you, your screens were so modern. And this sweep was going round and illuminating uh, all the planes around us. So, and, and this was, um, this was active service because this was actually, you know, Looking what is what is going on, so you learn such an awful lot with that, and so that was that was radar. That's that's where I went, and that was great. We we would if we worked in the morning, we'd have the afternoon off, uh, and then we worked we'd work the following, no, and and the following morning we'd have off and, and work the next afternoon. So it was on off shifts. But <clears throat> doing that, 
if there was a night flying, we had to go in at night. So if you worked the morning, afternoon off, you worked at night. And uh, that was interesting. Mm. <laughs> Very interesting. In fact, a lot of people got into trouble because more than half of our camp were, were WAF. We were RAF and the WAFs were there. They were doing the tables. And, of course, once they shut down, we were in cabins. And uh, so we would take certain planes on. We'd have, we'd have a squadron. And they would do practice interceptions over the sea. And then they would go back. Well, they went back at different times. So your cabin would be stood down. So you'd be going back to camp, which meant walking through the grounds of Bordsy Manor. <laughs> which is very interesting. But, of course, when you close, when you shut down, so the WAFs who were working on the table, your, your WAFs, they shut down as well. So you had RAF and WAFs. And they, the WAFs were not allowed to go back to the lines without being accompanied by the uh, by, by area. A lot of people got astray mm. <laughs> during those returns. And uh, it was quite funny. The, obviously, the uh, the authorities didn't like the idea that um, WAFs and Ermin were just walking through this forest together and whatever was happening was happening. You know, we're young people. What do you expect? Mm. And it got to the point where when they closed down, they had to wait till every cabin closed down, then you all have to go into line and be marched back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but was very interesting. It was a, an old manor house on the coast, and we had our own beach, so an own sunken gardens. But uh, you weren't tempted. Yeah. You weren't tempted to stay in the RAF. I mean, at the end of the two years, you didn't say, "Well, I actually really like this." So you, you felt compelled to go back to the family business or go work in the family business. Well, it was quite tempting because you do get an interview at the end. And I, I went into the interview and they said, look, what would you like to do? Oh, well, yeah, going back to uh, civilian life, back to the factory. What would you like to become an officer? So uh, you were sort of ready and prepared to take you into officer training. And if you wanted to be a fighter pilot, you know, you could go and do that. So it, it was tempting to be a fighter pilot. You know, oh, yeah. That's a, cool, that's a cool business card right there, isn't it? Absolutely, fighter yeah. pilot. <laughs> you know, when you when you're just twenty years old, you think well, that would be that'd be something different. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. But but, uh, but you did, you went yeah. on to do some something pretty cool anyway. Let's face it. And I, I mean, you know, you you went you so you went, you went back home. Um, you tried to work with the family business. They, they wouldn't innovate in the way that you felt the future was of, of that industry. So you and your brother set up Mercury Sports Footwear. After 18 months, you realize you can't trademark the name. So you come up with a new name, Reebok, that you can trademark, which, by the way, is a big lesson for people today that isn't focused on enough. A lot of people come up with a name around the kitchen table, launch it, only to realize they can't get the trademark on it, uh, which I think, you know, is very important. And, and, you, and you go off and build this incredible company. I, I guess one of the things I wonder about the family history, did, did your father ever see the incredible success that you'd managed to achieve with Reebok? Well, no, unfortunately, he died in 1976. 76, we were doing quite nicely, uh, but we're not quite into the American market. Um, and I think he saw that we were doing nice. We, we had... We had the uh, UK business. We we were, you know, we we'd actually got the respect. Everybody looked at us at Reebok. Yeah, you know, we were the athletics company. If you wanted a pair of athletic shoes, go to Reebok. Nike were just making the way in, 
And of course, Nike were big in running. And by that time, running was getting very big in America. And I was going off to America quite a lot. So he he didn't see, well, he he didn't see what we achieved at all anywhere near. And unfortunately, he wasn't the only one because Jeff didn't see that either. Um, We just got our hook. The thing that got us into America was a five-star shoe, Aztec. And uh, as you know, it's it's a a longish story, but we got Aztec. And... It, it was Runner's World. Runner's World was a magazine in America that had grown from just being a single sheet to a big, full, glossy magazine. And everybody was, who was running, they, had, they read this magazine and they believed what was in it. And Bob Anderson, who produced it, started to rate shoes. First, he rated them as number one, two, three, and four. That didn't work because the number one shoe was never available. It, it was so difficult to get hold of. So he, was, he did five star. He did ratings. Five stars was the top, and and that to me that was the answer. I first went to the NSGA show in America in 1968, and it was 1979 before I actually got a distributor in America. I had six attempts and failed on each attempt because we didn't have the hook. We, we needed something that was going to, you know, people. We needed people to want to buy our shoe, and. That would be if we could get a five-star shoe in Runner's World, and we did in 1979. I'd, I'd met Paul Fireman in, in the February, in the NSGA show in the February, and he said he wanted to be, oh, yeah, I'd love to distribute your shoes, but we need a five-star shoe. And I'd shown him this uh, Aztec. That's the one. It wasn't a five-star shoe then. But, you know, we're in the business. This, this is our business making a five-star shoe, knowing how to make a five-star shoe, knowing what was required. <clears throat> we knew that. Mm. And we did it. And it was in the August edition. That was, that was a shoe edition. And the- Paul Fireman, I told him to go down and pick up a lid. And he did. Came back. He said, oh, you've got Aztec five stars. I wonder if people that write these stories understand the impact they can have on history. Right. I mean, there is a theory that guy didn't. Oh, I'm assuming it was a, a male writer. Guy sat down and wrote wrote that story. If if he hadn't, then maybe the American market you wouldn't have had the hook, and it wouldn't have become the incredible success that it became. Right. That moment. That one thing. Right. It's yeah. Incredible. Um, that's time. That's time in its luck. You're there at the right time with the right product. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but you kind of made your own luck too, right? Because you, you know, if you hadn't made a good quality shoe that deserved a five star rating, were you were you above Nike in that ranking? I kind of want to see that list, you know, like what, 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 what who, who else was in that list? Oh, five star shoes. Yeah, well, who else had a five star shoe? I, I can't remember. We do have, we do have an issue actually. We could actually look that up for you, but um, Nike would be in there. Um, probably New Balance. Maybe Atomic Brooks. Mm. You know, there's a lot of shoes out there. But Atomic, there Atomic Brooks, you say? Brooks. Oh, oh, Brooks. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. We should, we'll post this on our Instagram later when the podcast comes out. People can go look it on our yeah. Instagram. They'd love to see this. I, I love, I love looking at the history of, of, of brands as well. So you know that 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 breaking moment. You must have been uh, very proud, right? I mean, I think at that time I know Nike was up and coming, but it was probably probably the one to chase, right? Adidas was the established market player, right? Well, I, I think. We're a bit upside down, though, because Adidas was a German company. Right. And whilst they had a, a nice business in America, they were, they were doing nice. They were doing track and field. They were very slow to get into running as such. Mm. And 
you know, it was slow to move in. The big one was, it was Nike. Nike had grown from nothing. And at that time, by about 90.75, Nike were really big. Nike were the, the one to look at because running was growing so fast. So, you know, we, we needed to join it. And, and we're in the UK. I, I'd been on to the NSGA show for 11 years. And for a lot of that time, people would come to the stand and say, wow, great. Where do I get your shoes from? And I would say, again, from England. And, you know, they're saying, what, New England? There's no website at that point to just order it from, right? You need distribution. Yeah, England it says England. Is that near London? Yeah. <laughs> is that near London? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah near London. <laughs> mm. So, but uh, this was the thing. We we to get to get to the consumer, we we needed the pull, and that pull can only we needed that hook, something that drew people in, and and that was having a five star shoe. Being there at the right time, running was growing. Fantastic. Now we had a business in America. Mm. It went through some problems, financing it and other things. But, you know, the next bit of real luck and magic that came in was Arnold Martinez. Arnold Martinez, he's, uh, he's a tech rep for Reebok. You know, our, our running is growing nicely. And Arnold's a tech rep. And he's down in Los Angeles. And this is uh, his wife, Frankie, is coming on really full of what she's doing with a, with a, with a girlfriend, Miss. And Arnold says, what's this? And it's aerobics. Um, aerobics. She's going to aerobics classes. We started off, and there it is, down in Los Angeles. And uh, Arnold said, what's it about? I said, well, it's about exercise to music. It's fantastic. Absolutely great. And Arnold said, can I come down next time and see what's going on? He did. Saw the instructor in trainers. Half the class in trainers, the other half no shoes at all. For him, that was, wow, why don't we make them a shoe? Nice, soft, glove leather, and with a cushion sole. Nice, narrow fitting for the American for women. Right. So he went up to Paul Fireman, who by then was sort of doing nice business, and said, Paul, Paul, we need to have a look at this down, down in Los Angeles. This, this exercise that the girls are doing, great, we could do a nice shoe for them. And Paul, of course, Paul is saying, wow. I hope you're talking about. We we're doing well. We you know we're in running. We're doing great. Fantastic. You know we don't need to play around with. You know, forget it. Forget it. Arnold didn't forget it. He went round to the back door to see Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was in. He was in charge of uh, production. And Arnold said, "Steve, look, this is going on. Can you make me two hundred pairs? Nice white leather upper, nice cushion sole on a woman's last." He got his wish. And Steve produced them this 200 pairs of shoes. And he gave them to the instructors and uh, one or two of the leading girls who were doing the uh, aerobics, and obviously his wife as well. Uh, and uh, the women loved it. Mm. Fantastic. Not only did they, they were these during the aerobic lessons, they, they were walking about. They went to work in them. They, you know, they, were, they were so comfortable. Mm. Fantastic. Problem is they made them in glove leather. Love leather, you can tear it like a sheet of paper. Mm. And uh, that was a problem because after six weeks, were, they were falling apart. Oh, had this been anywhere else but USA, Los Angeles, I think it would have been a dead business. But the girls didn't bother. They didn't care. They just went out and bought another pair. <laughs> and, yeah, and then we get Jane Fonda buying a pair and using them in her, in her videos, in her fitness videos. And that was it. Did you, have so, to, did you have to pay back then or was that just luck again? You know, Jane Fonda decides to wear them because they're cool or... Jane Fonda just chose to wear them. That so you, was... 
you're often credited in the marketing world because I come from a marketing world. Your, your organization, I think, is credited with kind of the first influencer marketing campaigns because you work with athletes in the early oh. days, right? And then later with things like this Jane Fonda example. I mean, this is, the, this is now it's very popular influencer marketing. It's like common marketing terminology, but you were pioneering in it, really. Yeah, again, like entrepreneur, influencer was not a word when we started. Right. But it was just someone that had a lot of people following or interested in what they're doing. That's right. <laughs> my grandfather knew all about influencing. Yeah, he gave <laughs> shoes to the right people. And, uh, and he, he gave the shoes to a uh, newspaper columnist. And, you know, somebody who wrote the column for the Athletics uh, uh, Review in, in a, I think it was. I think it was called the Sportsman, the paper. And he would give shoes to those people. And they would wear them. And then they would write and say, well, yes, these are the best shoes, comfortable. Whatever. So he knew how to influence. But he was only influencing other athletes. Mm. By the time we came to the business in 1958, 1960, Adidas had uh, sewn up the football business because, again, they were influencing. You could see the kids on the street wearing replica T-shirts and, and had the replica trainers. Mm. So influencing has been the... Uh, for a long while, and in those early days, you didn't pay. We we never we didn't pay Jane Fonda to wear our shoes or any of the uh, the girls that were leading the classes. Amazing. No, but of course, what happened is that this started to spill over, and I think if you can say something, that was the biggest spillover onto street. Reebok were the first to influence street at that level. Mm. Really, it just we became a woman's shoe company. Mm. People knew Nike, people knew Adidas, but they knew them as male, sweaty. Mm. That was, you know, this wasn't it. This was for women. Mm. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Finding that niche and, and expanding outwards. Um, I mean, at this point, you're also not just doing shoes, right? Because I remember, you know, my, my, my parents, they had like the Reebok stepper, you know, so it was shoes and the stepper that kind of combined, right? It didn't, you expanded a bit. Was that under your management or was that later? Well, America was being run by Paul Fine. You know, it was up to Paul Fine. We, we came to, you know, as far as I was concerned, there was no room really for somebody from England to go and start trying to run the American market. Mm. Paul Feynman, he'd been on the market with Boston Company, knew quite a bit about that. And it was, Paul, you look after America because America's going to be our influencer. Mm. So apart from innocent people, it was the American market that I wanted to influence the rest of the world. I mean, when I was going to the NSGA shop, um, I, w- I would get on a plane and there would be 20, 30 other um, sh- shop owners, manufacturers were on that same plane going to America. They're all going to the NSGA shop. And you take that around the world from every country. They were going to, to the NSGA shop. So this was a big influence and it still is. What happens in America goes elsewhere. You know, mm. A lot of the technology in America now we know it. You just need to look at the big companies and where are they coming from? Mm. You know, they're really the influencer from, so America influences the world. And I, I knew that at the time. And it, so you look after America, Paul. Paul didn't like traveling anyway. He wanted a big travel. You look after that and I'll look after the rest of the world. And that's what we did. So mm. a lot of the influences came from people like Ajo uh, Martinez, and, and then, in fact, we had a designer that uh, when, when Jeff died, unfortunately, right at the beginning, I had to bring a designer in from, uh, from Barter. Well, he came from Barter. And uh, at that time, I said, well, look, Paul, rather than staying here designing, you go over to America. 
So we'll set up the design so it's nearer to where the big market is. We, uh, not much point in everything coming around the UK and going to America. No, let's short circuit that, put everything in America. So all the design went, went to America at that point. And we, the rest, what I became then is looking after growing the distribution in the rest of the world. And, and it was up to the guys in America to grow America. <clears throat> so you know, that, that was what we were doing. And, uh, and Paul did a great job. Mm. That's an interesting but, strategy, again, for people listening. I, st- I still think that's a very modern, uh, correct strategy. I think I've seen, for example, I lived in Hong Kong for a while. People would try and set up Hong Kong. They'd send an American person to set up in China. Didn't work. You know, and the ones that did work, I mean, Uber, for example, set up in China. It didn't work because they sent their American team from Silicon Valley to China. They had a competitor that was a Chinese team, so, and they did really well. In the end, Uber had to close in China. So I yeah. still think this is relevant. You know, this, this, this knowledge yeah. you're sharing here, to me, is very, very, actually very interesting. Uh, that, that sometimes some things in business change and some things don't. Having a local partner is still a, a magic formula for making a market you don't understand work, right? Well, I used to argue this with uh, with our guys, and and I know that Nike used to send the same thing. They used to send people abroad. They used to send the Americans in. <clears throat> yeah. Great, you know, they all they thought they knew it because they were just replicating America. Yeah. Well, it's the influence you need to replicate. Yes, exactly. Yeah, good yeah. insight. That's true. Influence and the influence is local. Mm. So acting local. You, know, you can think global, but acting local is very important. Yeah, and the mindset, <laughs> mindset is different, you know. The, the, the food is different. Even in China, for example, they read back to front. You know, it's literally understanding these nuances that can make you connect to culture. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean that uh, every American sort of takes America with him. No. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I, there, are, there are exceptions to this rule. I mean, there are people that go yeah. there and, 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 and localize, but, you know, the point is localize, right? But uh, did you think you'd missed out when you saw, you know, Nike started in America, you started in the UK. So I guess there's an argument that, you know, you, you were actually at the forefront too. You could have been Nike. So in 1975, they're rocking. 1979, you're not quite there yet. You're almost in America. Then you get this five-star rating. But, you know, you must have felt my, maybe you'd missed the boat, did you? Well, I, I knew that we had to get in there. I mean, it took 11 years to do it. Um, but, but I knew, you know, if we were fortunate enough, we would get in before the uh, the footwork craze or the, the the running craze sort of leveled off, uh, and we did. We got in there, but yes, the, you know, the answer to it was uh, was finding the hook. I, I used to travel in the UK, and in, in those early days, I, you know, I'd been telling my father we need to have representatives, we need to do this. So eventually, I got into my car and I'm driving about selling my shoes, and I'm calling on sports shops. Those days, you'd got three or four sports shops and reasonable-sized towns, um, and they were all, nearly all ex-footballers. And I would go in there and say, look, I've got my Reebok shoes, and this says, yeah, they're very nice shoes, but um, who's Reebok? And I said, well, we're this, we're this. We're this. We, we were known in it by athletes, but we're not known by the retail trade. <clears throat> and uh, you'd say, well, look, I've, I've got Adidas, and then I've got uh, Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that was my first realization that I'm trying to sell something I want them to buy. Mm. I, don't, I don't want to be needing to sell. I need them to want to buy. And that's the difference between a push and a pull. And it's getting the people to want. So I had to get them into that position. And in the UK, we did that by going direct to the athletes. <clears throat> Luckily, the, uh, the, the three A's, Amateur Athletic Association, produced a manual which had 
two, three hundred uh, names of secretaries of every club in the country, <clears throat> which gave me the opening. I could write to all these people and give them a small discount, ask them if they wanted to be an agent or anybody in the club, and I, and I got over 150 agents. Mm. So our business was then direct to our consumer. And it was then that the, the sports stores, the ones that were in, in the know, they would pick up the phone and say, you're selling direct to our uh, athletic club. And I'd say, yes. <clears throat> and they say, well, look, I'll stop your shoes if you stop selling to the athletic clubs. And I said, well, you can buy my shoes at wholesale. The athletic clubs, they only get a small discount, 15%. Um, but if you want to sell my shoes, fine. You will get wholesale prices, but I'm not stopping selling the shoes uh, direct to the agent. And about 90% of the, the shops accepted that. Wow, that's amazing, and, right? Because in a way, you're their competition. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting negotiation. You know, you, I think this is another lesson for people listening. You, you've kind of done an interesting, you, who needs who, right? Who needs who? That's an interesting dynamic when it comes to selling. You created a dynamic where they need you more than you need them. Well, that was it, because as far as I was concerned, we had this discussion. <clears throat> I said, look, I, I mean, these days, mail order, yeah, that's great. Everybody buys now <clears throat> through the mail. Anyway, it's now got, In those days, they didn't, because sizes in particular were difficult. <clears throat> Return postage, nobody wanted that hassle. So, <clears throat> and then I would talk to the, uh, to the retailer and say, you're in a better place than I am. Now, you have a store, and I'm quite happy to promote you as one of our distributors, not a problem, uh, because people can call in, try the shoe on, and there you go, brilliant. And even you can give them a 15% discount. Mm. <clears throat> you can do as well as I can do. So mm. the conversations went along that way, and I said most of them a agreed with me yeah, that, uh, yes, they could do that. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, we developed, we developed our business then, and, and that, was, that was finding a hope, finding a reason. We need to give them a reason to buy my Reebok, they were not going to just take Reebok and put them on the shelf and say, look, we've got this new brand. Uh, so that star rating kicked it all in. That was it. Everyone wanted the five-star shoe, right? Everybody. Well, once you get a five-star shoe, yes. I mean, when it was just the uh, the initial number one shoe. No one did. Phil Knight. Well, Phil, Phil Knight was bringing these in from uh, from Japan, from Onitsuka. And, and they, couldn't, they couldn't just build a business all of, all of the night. They couldn't supply them with a million pairs of shoes because, you know, you've got 400 million people in America and, and probably uh, 20, 30 million will, will take it up running. Mm. So you could get orders for anything up to 5 million. All of a sudden, you're number one. 5 million people want your shoe. Mm. How, how do you do that? You don't. And so we had to change. Bob Anderson had to change Runner's World to, uh, to a star rating. Mm. That way there's four people. that Makes total could, sense, yeah. It's easier yeah. for people to understand. I'm, I'm conscious of time because I know you know you, you've got other things to do, and I I, I really want to. Um, there's a couple of things I really want to get for the listeners before before yes. we before we um, have to let you go. I I, I wonder. Um, you know, we all know the headlines. If you type in you know uh, Reebok right now, you get the kind of story of of uh, Adidas buying Reebok and for billions and all that. You you left before that, and but you stayed involved in the company. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What what, what actually exactly happened there? Well, I, I didn't stay in Bolton. I, uh, I decided I would take a nice time off and went to Tenerife, where it's sun, sunshine, it's beautiful and warm, <coughs> and I can relax. But, you know, it's, um, 
the, the company at that time, when I left at the end of 1989, uh, we were doing about just short of four, four billion. And, you know, we, we'd gone from zero to four billion. Four billion, four billion turnover in 1979? No, when I left in 1989. Oh, 1989. Okay, 1989. Yeah. Four billion turnover. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, we, we're number one company. We were, number one, number one. Uh, yeah. more, selling more than Nike. You we're selling more than Nike and Adidas. We, I don't think people that. I don't think people, that's, that's unbelievable. Yep, we're with the number one company. That and, is unbelievable. Uh, Sporting Goods Intelligence, they, they produced uh, information for, for, the, uh, uh, for the trade. They, they produced information. It came out, you got a Sporting Goods Intelligence sent this, uh, this paperwork out probably once a month. And they, 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 they called Reebok numero uno. Uh, it was coming from Switzerland, I think. Switzerland was providing it. Numero uno. Um, Nike were the eager Beavertons. They were up there in Oregon, and I forget what they called Adidas, but uh, we were numero uno, and <laughs> and that was great. You know, when I when I left, we were selling five million uh, pairs of uh, Reebok every month. Mm. So we were five million pairs every month, and uh, you know, each shoe had a Union Jack on. The box was a Union Jack, so we were actually selling fifteen million Union Jacks around the world every month. Unbelievable. Was, uh, the Queen should have been endorsing this product at this point, by the way. <laughs> she, did well, she ever wear we, them? We did supply Royal Family. We supplied uh, Princess Diana. We supplied Harry and Wills with, with shoes as well when we were kids. Um, so, yeah, we were supplying Royal Families. It, uh, and, and as far as Monaco, we were at Monaco with all the stars because this had become the Hollywood event. And uh, we, we were doing the Princess Grace tennis uh, memorial tournament, the tennis tournament. And all the stars would come. Frank Sinatra, he, he came along. Uh, we had Charlton Nelson, Roger Moore, Sean Connery. You know, they were all part of this. And so, so many names. And James Seymour. Uh, they were all part. So it was quite an incredible sort of situation to be in. But and, and, you know, you're thinking, well, half of my life I'm spending at 35,000 feet now. I'm, I'm going to wherever I'm putting down, I'm picked up by a limousine. I, I'm going to the best hotels and I'm eating at the best restaurants and we're just discussing the business. We have a, a whole bunch of lawyers in the company, a, a whole bunch of accountants and a lot of people who are actually designing, providing and selling the shoes in boxes these days, you know, cases and because you don't sell them one at a time. I used to sell them one at a time. But so for me, the challenge of God at that point, it was like, what's the point? I'm just waving a flag now. It's, uh, it's great. It's nice to meet all these people. Uh, this is fantastic. But, the, you know, this isn't for me. So the challenge, me. the challenge left for you. You felt like you had done it and, and you no longer felt the same challenge. Well, I felt there wasn't the challenge, and I also felt that the company had moved into a different sphere. Mm. It was now it now needed different people, mm. you know, people who could who learned different skills. It needed different skills at that point. You still need you still need the enthusiasm that uh, that I think sometimes it, it gets lost, and, and that is the culture. You, you need to have a winning culture, and. When you have a winning culture, everybody's got a smile on their face. Everybody's enthused. And, and you like the people to be joining the company who, who want to work for the company. They want to become part of it. And, uh, you know, it's it a surprise. Only a couple of days ago, um, people do come out of the woodwork. And this guy came out of the woodwork two, uh, two or three days ago, and he worked for Reebok for 20 years. And he, 
he worked on the uh, private side. And, and it's amazing some of the stories that he has uh, of what went on with the product. They had some bad times. In fact, I'm, I'm going to have a Zoom call with him next week because we're going to, we're going to talk about some of the things that I don't even know about. Ah, there's, a, there's a second book there, you know. Um, there's another book there, by the way. I mean, you've got Shoemaker yeah. now, which is an amazing book. Anyone that hasn't bought it should. The links are in the broadcast notes. But uh, that's the second book, I think. You know, you could do like the, the staff's point of view and the evolution, right? That would be a really interesting insight. I did mention to him that in, in, you know, in what he's got there, there's probably another book. Because what happened, he, he, was, he was so interested in the brand that he collected products as he went. Um, and one of the things that I didn't even know about, a retailer had gone, had gone bankrupt. And so that Reebok drew back all the shoes. And some of these are very old. Mm. Some of the stuff that he'd, had, he'd had in stock for a long while. And one of them was um, Wild Runner. Wild Runner was made at the Bolton factory. Mm. And he has, he didn't just get one. I think he had a half a dozen pairs of these They're shoes. They're valuable at that point, aren't they? They're collector's items probably at that point. Probably no, but he's using them. He, he runs in them. He, ah. He's still running in, in, in those wild runner shoes. And he's got lots of others. He has a poster from the Jaden Foster era, which was in the company somewhere. So he's got, in fact, he used to give lectures. Apparently over his 20, he, he knew so much about the company. They, they used to ask him to tell everybody in the company about uh, how did this happen. So I think that's going to be a, a very interesting uh, conversation i have with him no, and probably exactly. very interesting future i want to be so, a fly on the wall when you have that conversation but but, <laughs> but what happened so you so you 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 quit did you literally you say i i'm i'm did you hand the reins over to someone else what was the actual kind of action you took i mean you know as as you grow so people take places people come in and do different jobs for me i decided it was time to get away from just being an ambassador, I'm, I suppose I'm still an ambassador in many ways, but I needed to get off that treadmill. And so I, I just said, right, that's it, I'm retiring. And I, I went to Tenerife. But try as I might to retire. The history was in some time so young and so old yeah. that uh, it was it's a bit like Hotel California with the Eagles. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can check out, but you can never leave. Yeah, it's in um, your blood at that point, isn't it? It literally is a part of who you are. Well, well, for me, it was. Uh, I don't think my contribution was useful at that point. In fact, I think I've got more contribution now mm. than I had then. You know, the, the whole company it was buzzing, it was growing, it was everything was happening. So, how, how, me, old, how old were you at that point, by the way, just out of interest? How, how old were you when you... Just short of, uh, I think it was coming to, well, you know, I'd be 55, coming up 55. Just, that's, 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 that's young. <laughs> you know, I think that's young to retire, right? I mean, no idea of retiring at 55. I mean, that, that doesn't happen for most people. I mean, that's... Yeah, like I say, retiring was a, was a different word. I, I, I suppose I did retire. Mm. But but in fact, I was drawn back on many occasions. Mm. There were so so many things that had happened in those early days of, of the Reebok growth that uh, I don't say I'd, I'd lost it, but people were saying, "Why did this happen?" In fact, the, uh, the the American Internal Revenue they were concerned as to why Reebok was doing so well in America, and yet it was still owned, and the company the company that owns the brand 
is still in the UK. Right. So the, the, oh, right. Yeah. I mean, you have that today, don't you? Like, you know, where Google sits, China doesn't like of, you know, China companies in America doing well. Like, like, yeah, there's, 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 there was that politics back then, really, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, they were concerned that uh, the, a royalty was being earned and that royalty was going into the UK. Right. So still concerned that the royalty was going to the UK. <laughs> and the revenue, the internal revenue in America, they, they wanted, of course, uh, to look at that, whether mm. they could change it or not. Mm. So I'm going backwards and forwards. In fact, it, was a, it was a very nice trip. There. I went, uh, the, went over and um, went to, uh, went to yeah, I'm just trying to remember the name of the, uh, uh, the, the Lidl. Baker, was it? Uh, Baker McKenzie. Baker McKenzie. Right. They're big, big lawyers. Yep. And uh, they they have a property which overlooks the White House. And of course. Going in there. There's some symbolism probably in that, isn't there? <laughs> oh, I think it was, yes. They have an office uh, overlooking the White House, so, you know, they they're uh, who's the boss? And I remember going in there, they wanted to ask certain questions about what went on so that they could answer questions. And the, the, the big thing that for them was, oh, well, you must come and look at this. And they sort of go out, you go out on this balcony and there's the White House. Mm. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, so that, uh, that was, that was uh, something I did when I'm not really working for Reebok. But as, as it is, I have the memories, so they, they wanted to ask me. So it's fantastic. I also went to Arlington Cemetery at that time. I mean, mm. yeah, if anybody, if anybody goes to America, you've got to go to Arlington. It really is a, an eye-opener. It's wow. fantastic. I haven't been there. So, I think I've, I've always feel like I've done most of the bucket list items I wanted to do, but I'm going to write that one down. I've not been there. You, you'd find it very interesting. It, it is. And, of course, walking in Washington and seeing the memorials, going to the Lincoln Memorial, and mm. uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great place to be. So I'd never been there before, so that was, that was interesting. But I, I'm... I also had to go to South Africa because of uh, apartheid. Rewont was selling there, and uh, they decided to, uh, well, they'd have to pull out of uh, South Africa. Mm. Oh, wow, so, you had to stop working there, operating there. Yeah, because oh. the distributor in it, uh, we had a distributor there, and, and of course, when you go to America, it was, Paul was saying to me, Joe, we've just got to pull out of South Africa because there was so much going on politically at that time. Right. Uh, and I'm saying, but, Okay, we can pull out of South Africa, but you know the, the goods will still arrive in there. Somebody right. will sell. Yeah, yeah you can't stop demand. Yeah, yeah. You, might, you know, there's always they'll just yes. either they'll just replicate it anyway as well. The other ways and just copy yeah. goods. That's right. Yeah, well, shipping went up. Somebody would one of our distributors would be buying more goods than he could sell, mm. possibly purposely, and he'd be shipping on to South. Africa. So this will happen. It would totally. You know, um, something you can want, do. Yeah, Reebok was a successful brand. So, uh, you know, when it, when it came to, and did they call it counterfeiting? Mm. When it came to counterfeiting, yeah, but, you know, there were Reebok shoes made yeah. in the Reebok factories. Yeah, they're just overruns that they didn't declare. Well, you know, it's like the, um, the factories, you have a factory, and if, you, if you're a, a brand like Reebok, you know, one month we would be selling three million, and maybe another month more, and then less. And the factories would just make a straight line. Yeah, yeah. So, so at one point, they must have two million shoes sitting there because one month it's big, one month it's not, right? So That's right. Oh, the so, supply chain must have been absolutely mental. The, uh, the amount of cash flow management you must have needed to be at that scale must have been insane. 
So, you know, these, these are the difficult things that um, happen as you get growth. Yeah. Um, and so, like you say, you have a bunch of lawyers who have to work on this. And right. People who protect the brand. I, I would say, I would say, saying that I wonder if it's true. I would say it's easier to run a big company than a small company. Is it true? That's what I thought. <laughs> is it, is, am I right? No. No. I, I saw that. I saw, you know, when we were small, we, we used to get, Legal letters for different this, different that. Uh, even even Adidas uh, sent us a letter four years into business, sort of saying that our our two stripes and our T bar, which was the original uh, silhouette, that 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 was infringing their three stripes. Yeah, and officially it was like, oh, and then you know after five minutes, a big smile comes on your face and think Adidas. I love this. Like, I love yeah. this about you. I love uh, this point. You know, you get a legal letter from Adidas, and you're excited because they know you exist. You know, that's the optimist uh, and the ultimate reason I think why entrepreneurs are successful when you're optimistic about a legal letter coming from your competitor. So I love that about you. We pinned it on the wall for quite some years. It was there on the wall. But we just changed our silhouette. And as it happened, we we come up with a better silhouette. We come up with... These difficult Um, moments just make you improve what you do, right? That's kind of, I think, the lesson there sometimes. I mean, you do. You've got the knowledge of... Yeah. Okay. So we change our. We have to change it. We we wouldn't probably have uh, chosen to change it, but when we change it, like the name, we change. We get a better name. Mm. Um, we change our silhouette. We get a better silhouette. Right. So that, okay, now I want my listeners to pick up on that point because you know sometimes people are having difficult times, and they're never easy at the time. But there is a reason for it, right? It happened. It makes if you can get through it. it you know, the, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I guess is the uh, typical Instagram saying. But right, that's kind of it. Yeah. But the question that you came up with is, is it easier to run a bigger company, big company than a small company? And, and referring to this, we thought, oh, you know, we get letters, we get problems, and you get threats, some sort of legal threats from time to time. I'm, I'm always visiting the, uh, the the lawyer to say, oh, we've got a problem with this, we've got that. You know, we, we had letters which were leaking dye and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I thought, just want, you know, if we get big, we won't get that. We want that, but we got big. We got more. But, don't you, but at least then you have a legal department and you have, a, you know, you yes, have you have an army of people that can solve those problems for you, right? Isn't So that's, well, that's, that's my mindset around it. It's like, I mean, I've, 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 I've definitely have not had the size of company. That, that's why I'm asking because yeah. my, my experience is, is limited to about 300 people. So I, you know, I, I think, you know, that's why I love asking, I love having this podcast is people with more experience than me, but, but it was, it was just as hard to run a big company as a small company. Is that, is that the, is that the truth? Well, you know, even your lawyer, you've got a lawyer with a problem and the lawyer then comes back with different variations of what you can do. You're right. still, still in the position of having to make a decision. Yeah, but if you've got the firepower, you can fight back. Well, I, mean, I find a lot of, I mean, I've only had a couple of legal experiences in my life. Um, and uh, I was tempted to talk about them now and I'll probably get into trouble if I do. But, but I always found that the company that was coming after me always had like this never ending pot of money. They could, <laughs> they're almost like they could take anything off you because they can, it's like playing poker. They've got a bigger pile. Yes. Um, so they can, they can pay more people for longer. You know, it's like, um, I don't know, the Simpsons and the, uh, well, I forgot the name of the character, but he basically has lots of money. So he's always able to just like always threaten people and they will always back down because they see it as a bottomless pit, right? Right. Yes. So, so you know, these sort of challenges, even on, you know, on design and on, on whatever you might call new techniques and technologies, there's always some sort of, um, we have that technology. Like, you know, Nike had, uh, and, you know, well, Air is 
be free, but how can you, you know, but they had that registered. So there's always something, always the technologies that are going to get questioned and, and, and whatever. But, you know, in a way, there's some excitement about that. It's, it's something that's that part of the fun of it, right? If there's yeah. no problems, then it's boring, right? Yeah. Maybe that's what happened there partly, was it? At 55, you're like, okay, there's no challenges that I'm needed to solve anymore. You fixed the sales and distribution. You've got the production. You built the brand. That's it. You know, it's up and running, right? So, but, but I, I guess, um, you know, the, I think the company uh, sales value was fluctuates a little bit, but it was sold to Adidas for $3.8 billion. How much of that did you get? <laughs> well, I had sold before. Oh, so you sold the business when you retired? You, you... No, I sold before. Oh, okay. Who did you sell to? How does that work? That's, it was to well, it was to an American company, but the American company was owned by Pentland. And Pentland, you know, we, once we got in there and we needed the product, Paul Feynman couldn't pay for it. I couldn't pay for it. We needed money, and that was Stephen Rubin. So I came to an arrangement, and they got the shares. They... They took over the company. Well, mm. they took over the company. They weren't running the company, but they needed shares, and because we needed that flow of cash. Mm. Well, we, as I say, we went from nine million to nine hundred million in about four years. Mm. That takes a lot. Oh, of the cash. cash flow, like we were saying earlier on, that mind blowing. Do you know what I love about this point? Uh, that I, I don't want the listeners to miss here. This is my take on what you've just described. There, I feel like you were always about making Reebok successful. So, yeah. if that was a thing that was needed for you to sell your shares and for this business to then go on and become Reebok, you were willing to do it. Yes. And I think this, this is so amazing, this insight that so many people miss. I think so many people think it's about the exit instead of building a legacy, right? Yeah, I think that is now. I think they, I mean, probably if I was setting up a company now, I would be thinking, well, you're going there, you do something good for whatever period and you look for the exit because, yeah, Reebok is, is um, it's virtually impossible. It's, it's difficult to do. Okay, some people are still doing it. Um, maybe Dyson, James Dyson. I mean, he's uh, you know, he's grown a big company. Mm. Uh, he's not having a good time right now. But uh, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? I mean, the problem is as well when you get. I mean, like Richard Branson, you get you always get a bit vilified, don't you? That scale, you know, you've made that much money if you still still have businesses. Yes, um, yeah. it, it's it's. Uh, but at least, at least tell my audience you, you did okay, right? You, you know, you, yeah, you, all I, your I hard okay. work and I listened to the story. It's just incredible. Please tell me you did all right. I, I did all right. You know, it, it wasn't just a one deal. It was a continuous. It was like, you know, if, if we do this, then, you know, we'll, uh, we'll look after it. And, and you know, that, that was fine. It's fine by me. The most important thing, though, for me was that, you know, we, we've just got to this level. We've just got brilliant. And Paul said to me, Joe, I, I know how to stop this. That was the demand. He said, but I don't know how to start it again. <laughs> so, so we couldn't afford that. Mm. The, the thing we had to do was to make sure we met the demand. That means you have to have the cash there. You have to have it happen. Mm. And, uh, and it did. It happened, and, and I've got, like I say, the thing is that uh, yes, I left the company. Yes, it's all, but they still come back, mm. and I think now what is going to happen that uh, hopefully the uh, Adidas will pick the right company for Reebok. Mm. I hope they will do that when they're now just selling it, mm. and, and I hope we can now start to get that enthusiasm back and that mm. spirit back. That, mm. Come on, guys, you know that mm. because I, I, I know I, I I interviewed you on another podcast. Uh, and, and this came up and I still feel it like you I think you should buy the company 
I, 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 will, I will run it. There's someone better than me, to be honest, to run it. But the energy you have at this stage in your life, you know, you're, you're like a 40-year-old to me. You know, like you've got that like, okay, let's go again uh, energy. And, and I think it needs vision now, the business, doesn't it? It needs, it needs what you and your brother brought to it in the first place. I think it does need vision, and uh, you know, if you, I know a private equity company, and I know that they're interested. The nose is in there, so <laughs> Let's, this is nice. it's added. I think what a headline that you buy it back, you know, and, and they, 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 I know you, you, you definitely don't want to run the day to day, but honestly, that you, know, the, 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 sometimes I think, I think the, the founders of companies they come back. I mean, look at Apple. Steve yes. Jobs came back, you know, like you can never replicate that original founder very easily. You know, Apple's doing okay today, but that's because they, they basically installed a system before Steve Jobs left, right? But still, the founder coming back, I just, I, I do, I'd love it. I'd love it if you were, if you were, the headline was, Joe Foster buys back Reebok. Uh, it just, It'd be nice to think that that, that would happen. Can we do that? On, can we do that on April first, anyway? At least for, a, 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 for April Fool's. You know, we should. I just, I just see it. By the way, I actually, I, I actually see it. I've had this dream. I, I don't know if I told you. you. I've actually had the dream of you, of you buying it back. Yeah, is that with TikTok? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the the TikTok people love you, by the way. Just to say, I'm, I'm, my my TikTok right. community right now. Um, there's someone that just posted a comment about how Reebok saved their life, um, and I actually the thread went so quick, um, I couldn't read it. But um, but you've had a big impact on people's lives, and uh, you've got a legacy. And I and I'm I'm proud to uh, to. To, to be uh, having the chance to interview you. I have to let you go. I know you've got other things to do. and um, But I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I could literally continue to talk to you all day long. Um, but I appreciate you. I, I, and I, I love your book. Thank you for, uh, for sharing the story of Reebok from, in your eyes. It's an awesome book. For those listening that haven't read it, go buy it. It is incredible if you're an entrepreneur wanting to learn how entrepreneurship works go read it if you want to be inspired go read it and if you want to know more about joe go read it um but thank you joe for taking the time out to share your story with us today absolute pleasure thank you very much Simon, and uh, have a good evening yes you too i'll see you soon okay